0: This EB-5 Superheroes episode is sponsored by FMB EB-5 Hope. FMB EB-5 is bringing hope to downtown Los Angeles and EB-5 investors who believe in the American dream. Visit FMBEB5.com to learn more and speak with EB-5 superhero Matt Trush to join an EB-5 project today. Episode 15, EB-5 superhero Charles Kaufman, shareholder and corporate and securities attorney at Lexcuity PC.
1: You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes Podcast. Join host Matt Trush as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer. Industry expert, an EB-5 superhero. Matt Trush.
0: Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes Podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessary long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But today we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys to and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB-5 superhero, Charles Kaufman, shareholder and corporate and securities attorney at Lexcuity PC. EB-5 superhero, Charles Kaufman, welcome to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. Thank you, man. Charles, you're an old friend. You drafted the first set of EB-5 documents that I ever used. And more recently, you've reviewed our current FMB EB-5 HOPE project offering documents for securities compliance, specifically as it relates to California law, where our JCE HOPE project resides. Charles, let me brag about you just a little bit. Charles Kaufman graduated with a bachelor's and JD from the University of California, Los Angeles, where he resides today. Charles is a corporate and securities attorney and shareholder at Los Angeles-based Lexcuity PC. With more than 25 years of experience helping clients create, finance, and govern their businesses, Charles regularly advises developers, entrepreneurs, and regional centers seeking to raise capital through the EB-5 Investor Visa Program. Very unique, Charles leads Lexcuity's crowdfunding and tokenization practice, which has helped introduce those techniques to capital raising in a number of industries, including EB-5. Throughout his career, Charles has also advised public companies on securities compliance and public and private offerings. His depth of understanding in the field is increasingly valuable to EB-5 issuers. In the wake of the 2022 EB-5 Reform and Integrity Act's focus on securities law compliance. Admitted to the State Bar of California, Charles regularly publishes articles on securities issues affecting EB-5 and other cross-border financing transactions. Charles Kaufman, welcome again to EB5 Superheroes.
2: Thank you, man. Happy to be here.
0: Charles, first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal history? And then how did you fall into EB5?
2: My personal history is a little bit unusual. Law is a second career for me. I actually spent a bit more than a decade as a struggling screenwriter in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. Me too. Who uh, didn't? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Did, Did manage to sell a couple of scripts and had some fun with that. I've worked on some animated shows, wow. writing, writing scripts for animation, and uh, and then made the transition to to law and always attracted to the international milieu. And that's one of the things I like about EB 5 I was pegged as a securities lawyer by the managing partner at the first firm I worked at. It was in the LA office of Morrison and Forrester. And he felt with my my fiction writing background, I could perhaps write reality-based documents for companies that were out raising money. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, as we all know, when you raise money, one of the key things you have to do is have a good disclosure document where you, you tell your story to investors in a way that's appealing, but also cautionary and warts and all gives a complete picture. Incredible, incredible. So I really took to the the security milieu and also worked at another large firm, spent a stint in-house with a California-based publicly traded medical device company, and then was recruited to join this firm by its founders, Jor Law and Michael Holmeyer, almost 10 years ago now. And they were kind of pioneers in understanding the importance of securities law compliance in EB-5. EB-5 had taken off in the wake of the 2008 liquidity crisis and or credit crisis, and the a lot of the industry w- was not really on board with the idea that they were doing securities offerings and needed to comply with U.S. securities laws in doing EB-5 offerings. And it's been an evolutionary process where first USCIS and then the SEC has become more involved and paid more attention. That coupled with some of the notable frauds that happened in the program in the last decade, have have really brought a lot more attention to it. So I came on board to help up their game. I mean, they were pretty prescient in terms of the importance of securities law compliance. And now that we have the Reform and Integrity Act, which actually requires regional centers to represent that they're fully in compliance with both state and federal securities laws, it's become all the more important.
0: Incredible. What a story. From screenwriting to offering documents, writing. As you said, you have to have a good story. And the truth is the the risk factors portion of the offering memorandum is probably the most important. As you said, you have to tell all, but not scare them away. So Mm -hmm. an informed investor is a good investor, is a happy investor, right? Absolutely. So you really are a pillar, at least from the security side of EB 5 for decades now. Tell me, how have you seen the program evolve and to where we were, And then to where we are today?
2: I I think, you know, when I first came on board, there were still a few attorneys, even and and people active in the industry, who were in denial that these were securities and were fighting in the courts to establish that they weren't. And some of the things that are givens in the mainstream financial industry were hard sells in EB5. You know, for example, we had a struggle with the intermediaries disclosing their compensation, and we couldn't point to a rule, a written rule that said, you must disclose in a private offering who your intermediaries are and how much they're making. But certainly there was a history, regulatory history and a court history of that. And we did ultimately see a federal appeals court rule that not disclosing how much the agents brokers are getting and who they are is per se misleading. So that battle has been won. But it was, it was hard fought, and as much as our US clients wanted to follow the rules, you know they had to sell their deals, and the norm in the industry was to be very sketchy about uh, intermediaries were getting, and they were getting quite large amounts, particularly in places like China. And as one would expect, the more open disclosure has also reined in some of the excesses where uh, agents were perhaps getting an excessive cut of the offering. Well, it couldn't come out of the offering proceeds, but out of the downstream revenue of the project, a lot would go to the agents. The the other thing is the growth of crowdfunding in private capital raising or non-public company capital raising, and that's had its effect on EB-5 as well. Many of our clients now either supplement the use of foreign intermediaries or actually can do without them entirely by using crowdfunding exemptions in the U.S. to, to market their, their offerings online. And it also has the advantage of, you can cover the world with internet-based advertising of an EB-5 project. And there are many countries out there that don't have backlogs that aren't overbooked in the EB-5 system, where there are a few investors who would be interested, and you can find them that way, whereas the traditional way of going to conferences and recruiting local agents isn't going to have that degree of coverage.
0: <laughs> Remind me, the world before the crowdfunding regulations and now, what is it that we can now do? I know what we can do now. We can we can market through the internet internationally, but where were the regulations prior? What would we not be allowed to do?
2: Well, if you were touching the U.S. at all, and most offerings will bring in at least one or two investors who happen to be in the U.S. but, but need the immigration benefit nonetheless, you could not do any type of general solicitation. And that that would prohibit any kinds of advertising, but also even publicly available seminars and going out to sell to people that you didn't know they were accredited investors, you know, high net worth individuals before you started to sell to them. So the principal crowdfunding exemption that's used in, in EB-5 and actually for capital raising in the US as a whole, which is Rule 506C, flipped all of those restrictions that we've been working with in private placements for so many years and basically said you can market to anybody by any means as long as you actually make sure that they're accredited investors before you accept their investment and that opened it up where we often had qualms about how eb5 projects were marketed overseas whether they they fit within u.s state and federal securities exemptions because people were holding public seminars and advertising outside the u.s possibly conforming to regulation S which is the, the rule that lets you raise money outside the US without much in the way of US regulation but but still it was on the, on the borderline and there's just a lot more confidence now that we're coloring within the lines and our clients are in terms of how they're offering their securities both outside and inside the US
0: beautiful charles what about the long awaited RIA the reform integrity act <laughs> what is your take on it what did it accomplish and what is still yet to be clarified
2: it was long-awaited, and I've compared it to trying to get the ketchup out of the bottle onto your food where you tap it and you tap it, and then, and then suddenly it floods your, your your plate. We got what we wanted in that the program was renewed, and and we got some clarity and measures intended to rein in or prevent some of the frauds that had occurred in the past. But after years of debate about what an Integrity Act would look like, an opportunity presented itself to get the legislation passed. It was passed in a hurry and not perhaps as well-drafted as it could have been. And there are still many, many questions. And unfortunately, we have an agency in USCIS that's had perhaps understood its mandate to be to restrict and restrain immigration as much as possible, even when you're offering this investment-based opportunity to immigrate. And so they're There had to be litigation to get the USCIS to accept that existing regional centers weren't all terminated by the RIA, that they could continue their registrations and to get some clarity on some of the the regulations. There's a controversy now of what the sustainment period is. How long do investors have to stay invested? And it's frankly causing a little chaos in the the industry because for years it's been understood uh, and the regulations are still on the books that say, an investor has to keep their investment in place for the 2 years 2 year period beginning when they take US residency under their conditional EB5 green card and then until the, the subsequent 2 year period there's a suggestion in the RAA that 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 period begins when the investment is made and and that and if that 2 year period runs it would it would end in most cases before people have even taken residence in the US and it has a much EB-5 capital tends to make sense financially only as long-term capital. And the invitation for some to start telling investors you can be out in two years has perhaps brought some lower quality, less reasonable projects to the marketplace. And uh, we did have one of the senators who was involved in the Reform Act write a letter to USES to say that wasn't what was intended, that residency and sustainment are still intended to be coupled but we're still waiting for USCIS USCS has had opportunities to to hold forth and tell us what their final decision is, but we're still we're still waiting on that.
0: Yeah, it is a bit of a question mark. Of course, I remember when we got started, Charles, it was holding off to repayment of capital principal until the final adjudication of the eight two nine. Exactly. And then we had a, a big windfall that it was pushed to at the time of the filing of the eight two nine. And this new interpretation could could make it very, 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 very early. At least we're being conservative. We're not going to have the expectation that the clock starts two years from the time of investment, but rather two years from conditional, as you described, I think is the more conservative approach today. I think that is the more conservative approach.
2: And I think from a a business perspective, financial perspective, five years is a minimum is a term that that people are comfortable with to go to all the effort of putting together an EB-5 offering, having the capital available and invested in a project it needs to be a longer timeline. And I think even if the rules change to allow people to get their money out sooner, the market I think is still going to push for people to stay in at least least for maybe a five-year period. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
0: So Charles, your expertise is securities law and specifically securities compliance as it pertains to the EB-5 program. So what do regional centers, developers, and investors need to pay particular care and attention to given the new RIA regulations?
2: Well, people shouldn't wait until they have to submit the regional center filing to the USCIS where they certify that they've complied with all securities laws, because it might be it might be too late if people have ignored some of the technical requirements, and then you're going to have to disclose that you, you failed to comply in some respect and, and hope that it's not deemed to be material. And one thing I'm thinking of in particular is the Requirement to file a Form D, if you're if you're if you're going to rely on Reg D, and you can avoid Reg D if you think you really are going to have no U.S. investors. But I I would say almost every sizable project these days, whether they started looking for them or not, the investors find them. Someone who's here on a student visa, someone who's here on an H-1B and wants to use EB-5 to convert. You're going to have to use Regulation D to offer to them, and you're going to have to. Uh, file a form d with the sec it's not a difficult filing but it's time consuming to get onto the system and and to meet a 15-day deadline and the the way the representations to the uscas are written you you really can't make a clean representation if you haven't made that filing i can reassure people that you have a good exemption even if you fail to make the form d filing that's the sec has long assured us of that that the you know the form d is an informational filing but it is a separate requirement. It is a requirement of the securities laws. And then the states retain, most states use their retained authority to require you to file a copy of the form D in the state where you have an investor, as well as pay a pay a fee, which may be three or $500. And uh, it's not hard to do those things, but you have to think of it in advance so that you can be fully compliant.
0: Hmm. Charles, you're bringing up some interesting points. Is the... Onus upon the regional center, on the NCE, or on the JCE to make sure those forms federally and in the state are being filed?
2: It's a combined responsibility because it's the, it, you know, legally and under the securities laws, it's the responsibility of the issuer to make those filings. But the regional center is required to make a representation that, that they've been made. So the regional centers, if they're doing their job right, are doing due diligence and a greater degree of oversight than they have in the past to make sure all the processes are followed at the at the NCE level. Fantastic.
0: Very good. I wanted to bring up a very timely question. Since everybody's out marketing already their EB5 projects, let's get down to the specific question that I'm sure <laughs> is on everyone's mind, which is registering promoters. Mm. How should our project, FMB EB5 Hope, for example... Or all the number of other projects that are in the market now, except Reg D and Reg S investors, that are introduced by foreign promoters. When does a U.S. licensed broker-dealer need to get involved, and when not? The
2: rules on registration of of non-U.S. intermediaries are pretty old, you know. And you know, i I've, I've, I've had to look at for some guidance at the original adopting release of section 15 of the exchange act and or of the relevant portions of it which are you know a, an old scam it's not even really available fully electronically to understand what the what the thinking was but if the offshore intermediary has any contact with folks in the US or indeed if they have any presence in the US if they've opened an office in in the US they are required to register a, a, as a broker dealer and the the Reform and Integrity Act requirement that promoters be named and register with the USCIS is going to trigger a higher level of scrutiny on them. There's really no room to hide on on that anymore. So offshore broker dealers or agents would be encouraged to not open an office in the U.S., to not have contacts with the U.S., to not sell to U.S. persons. And they, of course, need to make sure they're compliant with the, the laws in their own country. But as long as they don't have a U.S. nexus, they can they can sell and they can register with the U.S. CIS, and it shouldn't be a problem. One area of controversy that we're all still seeking guidance on is how far down the food chain, so to speak, does the promoter registration go? In a country like China or India, which is enormous and has many regions and even many languages, usually... a a single agent is going to have, or a agent intermediary company is going to have sub agents throughout the country. And it appears that as long as they're contractually bound to the, the main agent, they may not need to register as promoters, but it's not certain yet. And there's a fear that that's going to be too onerous for some of the traditional ways that EB-5 has been has been marketed if every sub agent with, with an investor is going to have to register. There's a renewed emphasis, which we started to see several years ago, on having a US-registered broker-dealer on board with an offering. And the issuer does have, the NCE and and the developer, if they're affiliated with the NCE, they do have the issuer exemption to broker-dealering that they can take advantage of. So they should be able to disclose that they're promoters, but still take advantage of the issuer exemption and not be required by the SEC to register. But that's a very narrow exemption, that issuer exemption. And it's possible that people can be involved in parts of the deal that wouldn't qualify. And so having a registered broker dealer affiliated with the deal, making sure everything is done properly under the broker dealer rules is a way to avoid problems. Because we know that this is an area, it's it's become a hot button issue. And again, this is one of those areas where there's kind of no room to hide. You gotta make sure that you do it properly. And the issuer, the primary liability for going around and selling securities without a license is on the person doing that as an unregistered broker-dealer. But the issuer, the NCE, can be liable for aiding and abetting unregistered broker-dealer activities. And in the past, in another context, that's happened in EB-5, where there were immigration advisors who were in some cases, acting as broker-dealers, at least in the view of the SEC. And the issuers involved were also found to have aided and abetted the unlicensed broker-dealer activities. So I know something we spoke about recently was it's not it's not precisely the chaperoning rules, but it's similar to the chaperoning rules. Just as I, I mentioned that it it's often, even if someone didn't intend to go after US investors, a large EB-5 offering, an attractive one, will will bring in people who happen to be in the US. And need to invest under the U.S. rules. What happens if you've signed an exclusive marketing agreement with a non-U.S. agent and they're expecting to get a commission, legally entitled to get a commission under your contract at least on every investor, but you now you've got a U.S. investor who they can't sell to or, or facilitate the transaction with without violating the broker deal rules. And The way that can be handled is to make sure that uh, there is a registered U.S. broker dealer involved in the transaction. Does the selling? Can verify that there's been nothing untoward done with respect to the the non-U.S. broker dealer. And then actually in, in that circumstance, your exclusive offshore agent could receive a commission They could receive success-based compensation if it's all been done under the auspices of a U.S. broker dealer.
0: A lot of finesse details here. I think it's it behooves all of us to consult with a wise securities attorney like yourself charles so we make sure that we're doing everything just right you're too kind listen there's also another piece that i'm very excited about what do you think is the future of eb5 when do you think it'll be possible for international investors to make their capital contributions using bitcoin
2: <laughs> i don't see any reason why they could not except that our banking system in in the us can't really accept bitcoin or or cryptocurrency i mean in in theory we do have one state wyoming where state chartered banks can hold an account in cryptocurrency but generally that's not that's not permitted and i mean there's no reason why someone with a lot of cryptocurrency couldn't use it for their investment but under the current system it's going to have to be converted to fiat currency before it's accepted by the nce and the the, the other service providers escrow agents fund administrators, n- none of them would currently be equipped to handle crypto. The, I guess the other issue is because it it floats with respect to the US dollar, making sure that you've maintained the $800,000 or $1,050,000 investment. You'd have to make sure that if, if an account was held in crypto, it'd have to mark to market to make sure it maintained that level. I think for the foreseeable future, You're going to have to convert the crypto to fiat in order to enter the EB-5 system.
0: Isn't one of the very important of the source of funds tracking, as well as the flow of funds tracking, is knowing exactly where those funds came from, how did they get there, etc. And cryptocurrency seems to do a very good job of hiding many of those important sources. So, I mean, theoretically, you would have to first demonstrate that you had the money in legally sourced funds that had been earned reputably, et cetera, then maybe you would see it going into a cryptocurrency or a purchase of a certain amount of Bitcoin, let's say, and then you'd have to have the sale of that. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of, the whole concept of blockchain and, and cryptocurrency is that a lot of those things are are hidden. Is that part of the problem as well?
2: Well, I mean, that's a perception, you know, cause it's true that, that, that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies They do present opportunities for money laundering, and they have been used for illicit transactions. But they also do have a transparent, publicly viewable record of the transactions. The problem is, what are the wallets or what are the pockets that that it's been moving through? If it's all been through legitimate sources, it should be as traceable and as acceptable as money moving in and out of brokerage accounts or bank accounts. If it's ever gone through a dark website or something like that, you're gonna you're you're, you're going to be in trouble. But source of funds is definitely something that you don't want to ignore. The lore in the industry, at least, is that there are uh, there are many countries, particularly the former uh, Soviet countries, where there are high net worth individuals who could benefit from the EB five program, and who probably didn't have illicit sources of money, but it's just so difficult to document. Where their money came from real estate transactions that were unwound after the fall of communism or other transactions is just there's a lot of murkiness and people people have had trouble demonstrating their their source of funds so In theory, cryptocurrency should provide a a, a transparent register that would show exactly where the money came from. Fantastic. Thank you, Charles.
0: Charles, you're really a genius in your field, and I'm so fortunate to work with you and to call you my friend. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the cutting edge work that you do in the area of EB-5 securities law and sharing good news as our, our new FMB EB-5 HOPE project takes off from the runway. Want to give you blessings for continued success and health and wishing you onward and upward.
2: Thank you, Matt. It's always a pleasure to work with you. And your enthusiasm is infectious. And that's what keeps this industry going and what makes the work still fun.
0: That's a wrap. Charles Kaufman and other EB-5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero.
1: Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question or suggest an EB-5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit EB5Superheroes.com.